Welcome, everybody, to the Healing Place podcast. I am your host, Terry Welbrock, and excited to have with me today, Reverend James Encinas. So welcome. Thank you, Terry. Wonderful. I, as I, I asked before we got on, I, I'm going to read a poem by Jehuda Halivi, which I want to ground this uh, conversation in. Uh, the poem is called, Tis, Tis a Fearful Thing. Tis a fearful thing to love what death can touch. A fearful thing to love, to hope, to dream, to be, to be, and oh, to lose. A thing for fools this, and a holy thing, a holy thing to love. For your life has lived in me, your, la your laugh once lifted me, your word was gifted to me. To remember this brings painful joy. Tis a human thing, love, a holy thing, to love what death has touched. I think, uh, you know, as I was preparing for our conversation and this poem just came up for me, um, and, and uh, so I, I think it's important to ground a conversation in where I come from and my origins. I was born in La Paz, Bolivia. Um, my mother was of Spanish descent from Navarro. My father of uh, native uh, Bolivian uh, from the Incas. Uh, uh, mestizo. Uh, they met and fell in love and had four of us. Um, and that I was there from the age of, uh, from birth to about eight. And, and at this point in my life, looking back, it had a tremendous impact in um, Terry Gross and on being asked people about their spiritual beginnings. And, and I, uh, I grew up in domestic violence, which I think is important to know about me. And <clears throat> when my mother would leave him at the end of some beautiful, you know, brutal battles between them and beatings, uh, she would take us to live with my grandparents in Sucre, which is the capital of Bolivia. And they had a beautiful home and we would be there for like six months before he would come and beg her to come back and, and she would, uh, and she would eventually return to him. And uh, it was a magical time for me to be with these two individuals, my grandfather, grandmother Raquel, my grandfather Medardo, um, which led to, I, I think, those people that give you resilience through, through the trauma. And um, so my grandmother was very religious, um, Catholic. She would take me across the street, uh, to a church, uh, and it was a scary place for me as a child because in, in Latin America, there's that melding of the indigenous with, the, with Christianity and, and the saints and, and uh, a lot of uh, understanding of death and sorrow. And so a lot of saints had like blood coming from their eyes and there were these spikes on the walls. So as much as it was scary, it was titillating to me. It was really, uh, in some way, just, uh, I think, influenced my, my uh, question. It, that, that part of myself that I think in, in this conversation that we're going to have, I, I think for me it's more about the questions that I can raise versus any answers that I have. And, and so that began for me. I think that journey that I, you know, I'm 61, going on 62 in January, and I've always been a seeker. I didn't really know that until 
the last five years. And as I was sharing with you, I just spent uh, a week in Albuquerque with 500 seekers like myself. And, and it was a beautiful experience. So uh, that world of uh, Latin America, of Bolivia, of that indigenous uh, world mixed with, with uh, the world of the colonizers, um, informed a lot a large part of myself in terms of we're heart people and and uh uh at the same time i was my, both of my parents were intellectuals and and so um that intuitive knowledge i think was there from from the beginning so i so from there, we came to the United States. My father uh, was a consul to the United Nations. Uh, he was fighting for our right to the ocean. We had lost access to the ocean in a war between Chile and Peru. And that was my father's passion to, to try to get us to, to have access. And that brought him here. He met someone here who uh, my father was a very charismatic person that uh, he was a lawyer uh, in Bolivia. Uh, one of the, at the time, Basis and Soto was president. My father was his lawyer, one of his lawyers. And he met someone here uh, with a lot of wealth and access. And that person got him a scholarship to NYU. My father liked it here. Uh, he went to NYU to become a lawyer in this country. And at some point he brought us over um, and, uh, you know, up to that point, I'd, I'd experienced a lot of physical violence. And when we got here, it changed in terms of um, being in a new country and not being a, a, amongst his people and, and not knowing and or understanding that there were different laws here, I think kept him from going to that physical place. But the violence, emotional, verbal abuse, didn't really stop in terms of their constant battles with each other. Um, and so uh, coming here to this new country, not speaking the language, being of a different uh, ethnicity and culture was a struggle for me, apart from what I was living with at home. And what I found was that, uh, you know, racism, which we're dealing with right now, uh, on a very, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, it's very out in the open, right? Because of what we're going through in this country. That always was there, you know, and I lived through that. And uh, I was called thing, things like chink and spick. And I grew up in an Irish Italian neighborhood and they didn't know what to make of me. So uh, um, I was an angry young man or child uh, got in a lot of fights, got kicked out of school for fighting. And so I had a tumultuous uh, academic, uh, early academic elementary and high school experience. I'd never really applied myself. I didn't like school. Um, I've, I've always been a creative person and um, which explains why at 26, I decided to become an actor, but uh, going back to that period, there was a lot of struggles in the home and a, a lot of struggles in, in my personal life and my engagement with community. Uh, and that's important to know because um, I'm going to talk later on about my Aspen experience and how I became an Aspen teacher leader fellow, which uh, 
really had an impact on me. Uh, so what, what I um, experienced was a lot, a lot of loneliness, a lot of anger and rage. I was thinking back on mentors in my life, and my first mentor was Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> which I never really thought of him as a mentor, but I, I picked up his book, Pumping Iron. And, and I related to him because his father was an abusive individual and very abusive to him. And I think led to him picking up the weights in order to be stronger than him. And, and that's what I did, you know, in order to vanquish my abuser. Because at some point when the uh, violence towards my mother ceased, it turned towards me. And, uh, and so I became as the oldest, his nemesis. And uh, from an intellectual level, you know, he would put me down and also physically he was a threat to me. Um, and so skipping ahead, my parents finally divorced. I, I shared with you that there's four of us. My mother got pregnant at the age of 48 with, with my last sibling, Tommy, the young man who's a beautiful young man. He's in his 40s, has a, a wonderful wife, Marcy and, and Ellie and, and uh, Easy. Uh, uh, there are two children who are four and two. And so I was, uh, I was 21 when Tony came into our lives. Wow. And that was the uh, impetus for my mother to leave my father uh, because she wasn't going to raise him in that environment that she had raised us. And so she left and she was living in a track home with my grandmother, uh, Raquel, who had come to help her with the baby because my mother was a teacher at this point. My Aunt Carmen, who was my grandmother's best friend and uh, <laughs> couldn't live without her, came and lived with us. And, and then my sister and, and Tony were living in this little two-bedroom track house, and my father stayed in the house. And by this point, I had left, and I came back to stake her place because that house, which was the second home we, we bought in New Jersey in Edison, was uh, paid for in a sense by my mother's inheritance from, from her parents. And so uh, we lived in this house for six months, he and I, without speaking. It was a big enough home, five bedrooms. I stayed downstairs, he was upstairs. Um, and uh, we just kind of cohabitated without engaging. And I was an athlete, Terry, so I, I did triathlons and I would go on these long, runs and I was on this 20 mile run with a, a colleague and I came home and prior to coming home, he and I had had a couple of beers. And so I was feeling exhausted physically and, and had a couple of beers in me. And I, I, it, I don't know how that impacted me, but I went inside and I found my father laying on the couch in his guinea tea and through the wounds. And he was a, a Johnny Walker drinker and there was a bottle next to him. And I just sat across from him for the longest time, physically exhausted with all these questions that I needed to ask him. I was 26 at the point, uh, 23 at that point. And, uh, and I just needed answers. And so I woke him and he kind of got himself together and sat up and he stared at me. And I asked him, uh, you know, what I, I just, why we had, gone through you know why he didn't love us and and his answer to me was uh uh and i i don't want to repeat this and and but it was uh, uh abusive language in spanish you know uh 
desgraciado, you know, loser. And I just snapped. I just, it just broke me. And I, I uh, got up and I started walking towards him. And I said to him, you're never going to speak to me that way again. And at this point, I was physically no longer afraid of him uh, or my mother or any of us. And I think he sensed that uh, as we do uh, whatever that was coming at him, that energy. And he ran up to the second floor landing and he told me he was going to call the police. And I was just, I just laughed at him standing there in his, in his underwear. And I said, go ahead, you know, and uh, they're not going to help you. And he ran up to his room as I came towards him. I went into the kitchen and I went through the knives and I, and it's, this is all in my book. And uh, I picked the knife. I just picked, I went through to get the right knife that, you know, I was going to use. I still have that knife. And uh, I went up and I kicked his door down. He had locked himself in and he was on the phone with the police. And we struggled. I took the phone away from him and I uh, had him up against the headboard and I put the knife to his throat. And at that point, I kept repeating over and over, why couldn't you just love me? No. And, um, and then at some point, Terry, I stepped back because I really saw him, I think, for the first time. He was just a helpless individual there uh, with the inability to love me. It wasn't, that wasn't, he wasn't going to give me the answers that I needed. And I stepped mm -hmm. back and I dropped the knife and I was sobbing, you know, I was an emotional wreck. And, and I stood there and I, that was the first moment that God presented himself to me. I remember this light coming through the window and I'm just feeling myself you know, held in this light. And I, I know that at that point, the seed that was planted was that I, uh, I had to love myself. I didn't fully understand that. I, I called my mother and, uh, and she was like, Ijito, you know, just come home. And, and I went to her and, and what she wanted to know was what I had done to him. Like she wanted details of how he had been belittled and, you know, vanquished. And that didn't help me at all, you know? And I realized, wow, she can't love me either, you know? Uh, I just, from the very first moment, from the age of three, I became her protector. And I was her protector all my life. And so, um, so I, I think I was there a couple of days and I picked up uh, M. Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled. And in it was this line that you can't love anyone until you love yourself. And so I wanted to give you that whole backstory because that was what, I'm 61, I was 23, so 40 some years ago that I first read those words. And it's been a long journey of uh, learning how to love myself. Uh, and uh, one of the things I want to talk to you about is Richard was on Oprah and she said, what would you share with the world? And initially he said, you know, love, the power of love. But then he said, you know, that word has become so diluted in our culture. So what I would say to people is be willing to be with each other in their pain. And I deeply understand that. Yes. And uh, so having to learn to love myself, to connect with the source within me, 
that was there from the moment before I was born and is there with me and will be with me after I'm gone is the understanding that the suffering that we experience actually informs us. It makes us who we are. And part of what I've also come to understand is that we need to suffer together. We need to suffer right. in community, right? To, to create safe spaces where we can come together and, and hold each other up. And, and, uh, and I think, um, which leads me to the ACEs piece, which is the subject of my, my work, is what uh, I think the most powerful thing that Vince and, and Robert Anda did was to identify that all of us have these experiences, but they're hidden from us because of shame. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and social, you know, social norms and taboos. Yeah. And so what we've done is we've hid them in closets, right? And so when I look at my mom, my mother died um, two years ago. My father died six months after she did. The full circle in my journey was uh, towards the end of my father's life. I went and cared for him, and so to go from <laughs> almost killing him to then being able to be with him and, and love him and nurture him was incredibly healing for me because I got to see and, and, and experience an individual that I had in a sense been denied because of the nature of their relationship. Uh, I didn't really know him, you know, uh, the poet in my father, uh, the writer. Uh, I, I mean, I knew that that was there, uh, his, his faith was such a deep faith that he grabbed onto as his life kind of uh, informed him and, and took things away from him. And so I think one of the most beautiful moments I had with him, Terry, was uh, at a point where he was no longer able to bathe himself. I would bathe him, you know, and I would dry him off and he would sit on the toilet because he couldn't stand and I would dry his feet. And I remember one time in drying his feet, this, this feeling of grace, this feeling of something beyond myself in that space between us. Uh, and it was a beautiful experience. It was the same experience as that experience of that light coming through the window. And it made me understand that those experiences are there for us to be able to, to, to have, that this is, this is part of every one of ours reality right our our gift and and so uh, but you need tools and practices right which brings us back to what aces did for me is made me understand that this trauma that i had lived through had actually disconnected me from myself which i know you and and, and watching a number of your talks they're very well versed in in aces and adverse childhood experiences and how that impacts us as far as uh, our emotional, mental, and physical health. And so um, that's where the Aspen piece is important in that uh, at some point, uh, I taught for 17 years. I I was an actor, as I shared briefly. I don't really want to get into that world that much, but it, it also did give me tools. Theater helped me to get in touch with my emotions. I was a very shut off guy with a lot of muscles and then i was told well you can't you can't 
portray other characters unless you drop that veneer, right, that you've created. And so uh, that was important in my development, but at some point it didn't sustain us financially, my wife, Nora, and I. And uh, she finally got to the point that she trusted me enough to have a child with me. And my daughter, Emma, was born. She's now 21 and going to be a senior in college. And, uh, and I realized I needed to get a full-time job. And I had been substitute teaching to make ends meet. And everywhere I went, uh, and I come from a long line of teachers, they would say, don't you want to like do this? <laughs> You're so good, right? And so I, I was in a long-term uh, job for Risa Oaken in, in, uh, in, in uh, Venice, California, where I lived, uh, Westminster Elementary. And she decided not to come back. Her husband was a producer and she wanted to be more uh, influential in raising her children. And so I was offered her job and I took it. And that led to 17 years in the classroom. Uh, and there's a whole, you know, a lot of stories around that. But at some point, I became an activist because um, Ed Reform started coming about. California had this thing called Prop 30, 38, uh, 39, which was about co-locating schools, taking schools that were gentrifying and losing students. And I was in a predominantly Black and Latino community. And we were losing our students as they were getting moved out of property that was now choice property. Uh, and so there was an attempt to co-locate my school and I fought it and it got me a lot of attention because uh, I was brought before the superintendent and asked what would I do to not like this and to you know end those. I, I got my teachers to sign on to, to us becoming our own charter and leaving the district. And so uh, I asked him to remove that co-location, which he did. The individual that was gonna co-locate us, uh, a gentleman by the name of Steve Barr, invited me to lunch. <laughs> and, and he was like, hey, how would you like to come in or for us? You know, we wanna help, uh, we wanna talk to the union and get them involved in, in being more instrumental in, in this issue of how to best educate our children. And he offered me a salary that I couldn't refuse, especially, I mean, double what I made as a teacher. And so I went to work for him. And at that point, uh, somewhere in that, uh, in working with him, he asked me if I wanted to be an Aspen fellow. I had no idea what that was. And I said, sure. And they submitted me and, uh, and I got accepted. It's an invitation only thing. And uh, I became an Aspen teacher's leader fellow. And that fellowship was created by uh, the, uh, the gentleman who uh, actually, um, John Daisy, who I met, who was the superintendent of the schools, uh, LAUSD. Uh, so that's an interesting story in itself. But so I, at Aspen, I'm sitting in a room of 20 of us, 600 of us, I guess, had submitted, 20 of us were, were chosen. And they're all academics and intellectuals, you know, from Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. And I'm like, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, I'm a guy who got kicked out of school, who, like hated math, you know, to, like had to take algebra three or four times to pass and, uh, and get through uh, college. And so, but what happened was that I brought my heart into the space. 
and and that allowed them to hold me and love me and help me get through this thick text that we read Aristotle and Socrates and Plato and and uh, Martin Luther King and uh, you know you name it all these individuals that were instrumental in trying to create a good society uh, and that ignited so I read a piece by Ursula Le Guin a fiction writer I don't know if you know her but this is called walking away from Omalas and it's about this beautiful place where every day is is lovely and gorgeous and everybody's happy but there's this person in a cage in that in that town and everybody knows and Ursula doesn't identify whether that's a little boy or a girl it's malnourished it's 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 you know uh it's suffering and people come by and visit it and uh and there are those people that just can't handle that knowledge of having seen that child and so hence the title walking away right and so my my colleagues uh embarked on a conversation about where do they go right my experience was what was that child you know and I was like, how do I get back? Yeah. Right? And that just led to me just becoming voracious about, you know, driving nine hours to see Bruce Perry speak uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, Dan Siegel and reading everything I could about him and Bessel uh, van der Kolk and, yeah. and neuroscientists and brain development and and eventually I, um, I came upon this understanding that I needed to, in order to address this issue and come back and, and, and in, in some way have an impact on it, um, it had to begin with my understanding of parenting. And so I became a parent uh, educator um, under Ruth Biegenhol, who taught nonviolent parenting at ECHO which she no longer is at, but a uh, wonderful woman. Uh, and I spent two years learning how to be a, a nonviolent parent educator. And then that also led to me becoming a, a domestic violence service provider. Uh, because again, that was a big part of my experience. Uh, and what I ended up doing uh, with those skill sets was at some point I worked in San Fernando and I created a program where I took men um, through this process individuals who were remanded to me, men and women, uh, through domestic violence uh, services, but very differently than what is out there in terms of, uh, I didn't demean them, I didn't shame them, I, I brought them into this, I created a safe space for them. I love them. Um, we did things like uh, make lotus flowers and masks and, and uh, uh, some form of prayer. It wasn't really religious, but it was just acknowledging something greater. I taught them about ACEs. I, I gave them the ACEs quiz, uh, more from a perspective of what it did for me. It made me understand why I did what I did. You know, I started drinking at a very young age and uh, smoking a lot of pot through most of my late teens and a, a lot of self-regulation that wasn't necessarily <laughs> healthy, right? Right. 
obviously from the story I shared with you, there was a lot of anger and rage also to go with that. And so uh, engaging with these individuals and helping them to self-regulate, giving them tools to self-regulate, make them understand the impact they were having on their children, right? This, uh, what that in 20 years, their kids would be in that space, right? Because uh, what we're understanding now is that uh, three out of four of us uh, men who grow up in domestic violence perpetrate domestic violence. I would not cross that line physically with Nora, my ex-wife, but I was verbally, emotionally abusive. Right. Uh, and lately I've been having conversations uh, and I'll talk about the work that I'm going to be embarked on, but about the fact that we're all victims, but we've been really good about identifying bad people. Right. And then putting them in boxes. And and what that has done is rather than, uh, you know, so putting them in boxes and then fixing them. Right. right. Making them who they we think they should be. And trauma-informed care has really turned that on its head, right? Because what we now know is that these things that we used to see as the problem are our solutions to that problem, right? Not necessarily beneficial to us or anybody else we engage in with, but it's how we learn how to cope. Right, right. Uh, And so uh, this idea that we're all victims, we... uh, and the, and the understanding that this love thing and this relations, relational nature can actually help us to, to acquire, it, it can open us up to being able to see that there are other ways of being. Right. And I instantly thought of one of the things that I tell people is, you know, when I'm driving down the road or sitting in a red light, and I've said this before on the podcast, but someone's in front of me, you know, texting and, or on their phone and don't go through the red light. And I used to get all irritated. And then I started, I realized I needed to take a step back and realize maybe something really horrible is happening in this person's life. Or, you know, if they flip me off out the window as I'm driving by, I don't know what's going on. And, and so I talk about honoring one another's stories because we really truly don't know what is happening in someone's life that flipping me off thing is just an angry person it really has nothing to do with me they're dealing with something in their life um you know whether it was from childhood or current situation um but yeah and they just they don't have a healthy outlet for it and so yeah i love the idea that you have of honoring each other's stories well and and it's obviously much more complex than that right right so that's a good starting point, but also, uh, and I listened to one of your podcasts in which you shared, you know, your brokenness and this feeling that who were you to write a book, right? <laughs> and uh, and uh, because you weren't healed yet or, or, or not broken anymore. And, and I, you know, I think healing, I don't think we're ever healed, right? I think it's a lifelong process, but, but we do have uh, the ability as you're sharing, uh, as you're sharing is informing people with our stories, our journey, right? The hero's journey, the things we've overcome. Uh, And that's a big part of the book, Wheeling to Healing, is these amazing uh, individuals who uh, I encountered as I was asking them about their ACEs and who just, you know, they, you just, they're not, they're not 
you know, uh, running NGOs or, you know, organizations or, or, or have uh, necessarily achieved whatever this idea of success is that we, we espouse to, which makes no sense to me in terms at this point in my life. Um, but um, have so much to give, right? You have so much to give as I have so much to give. But in order to do that, we, we do need to address the, the, the barriers that we in, in many times have created for ourselves, right? The walls that yes. build around us. I mean, the whole week at Aspen in the conversation was uh, boundaries and the boundaries that we create. And, uh, and obviously because of what we're going through, it was about the refugee crisis and immigrants and, uh, and how we contribute to that problem. Which actually, for me at this point, Terry, is the understanding that um, there's been a lot of work done around ACEs, right, and and creating trauma-informed environments. But what I've come to see, and and Jane Stevens and I had a conversation where she enlightened me to this, is that we always have this evidence-based approach, right, that that. Uh, we come upon uh, where we decide through tremendous amount of research what what works, and then we impose it on people. But we never begin with ourselves, right? right? We never start with looking within and seeing our own traumas, our own adversities, and how they impact the lens that we wear, right? Right, and so we take this beautiful tools and practices and skills, and then misuse them because we try to impose them rather than allow them to be informed by just us bringing them into the space and offering them, right? And, and in order to, for them to be effective, that offering has to come out of a place of relational, uh, of relational experience. And whether it's teachers, which is what I'm going to be working with, or people in the prisons or foster care, or to just do that self, you know, my journey, my journey has been that journey, right? To get to a place where, you know, I was the guy that if you cut me off in traffic, I jump out of my car, <laughs> you know, and bang on your window. And, right. You know, uh, to now this individual that uh, really, if I had my choice, I'd, I'd move to New Mexico and sit with these beautiful seekers right. and just, you know, be on that mountaintop, you know, yeah. but I realized that I'm, I, I just learned what my gifts are. And I, and like all of us, as, as you have shared, you know, that you actually get so much from this work that you're doing. Yeah. Uh, and I think once we're enlightened to it, like what you just said about, you know, we don't look at ourselves, we just take this information and, you know, hand it off. Um, but once I found, at least personally, and I, for many of my guests that I've talked to, it's almost as if once you've been given the gift of this, that then you do, I know that I certainly, it certainly changed how I looked at almost every person that I encounter. Um, because I now look at them through that lens um, of uh, compassion and, um, I mean, obviously I'm not perfect in their state. <laughs> I don't, but I really do stop and say what has happened in this person's life. And one of the most powerful ones for me was with the second bank robbery. And 
I don't know if you know my story, but a lot of trauma in my first 22 years of my life. And during that second bank robbery, um, the, the man in the first bank robbery had held a gun to my head um, and stabbed my coworker three times with a hunting knife. And then three months later, they came back to our other branch where I had just moved and robbed us again. But this time, the man who had held the gun to my head shot and murdered my coworker. And so I had to come to a place of forgiveness with him. And I remember the moment when I found out he had died in prison. You know, this was just three, 2016, 2014. Anyway, a few years ago. And I remember falling to my knees and crying and, you know, asking God to forgive him. But I, I remember when I came to a point of forgiveness because I said to myself, what happened in his life? to we, we were both born these innocent little creatures right these little babies what happened to him in his life that made him so cold-hearted and so broken that pulling that trigger and taking a young lady's life um that that, that was his what he saw as his only option um and once i did that i was able to reach a, a place of forgiveness with him because i realized again that um you know i didn't know his story so yeah yeah the power of story terry it, it just uh i had an experience because of uh being a man of color uh and at this uh gathering there's it's a two-year program the, the living school uh which is really just a deeper dive into uh an engagement with our truest self and the world and and the source, whatever you want to call it, God, the divine goddess, you know, whatever your name for that source is, which most of us understand or have an, a sense of. Yeah. Um, I, um, being a person of color and because of the things that we're, we're addressing, like reparations, et cetera, and what was done through slavery and what's been done through colonization, we were brought into this conversation and, um, it's a, it's a long uh, story that I can share at some other time, but basically uh, there was a two-hour slot and uh, a ritual was carried out. And, and the ritual was having a witness, who, uh, uh, the, the people who presented the ritual decided it was going to be somebody who was white. And so the witness just watches. And then there's these two people having a conversation, two people of color, and talking about how uh, their race and culture has uh, uh, how it's impacted their experience. Uh, and, and many of them go into that place of pain and suffering in terms of how they were treated because of the color of their skin. And it was really very powerful um, and intriguing to me. And again, brought up a lot of questions in terms of this idea of how, sto how story is able to go beyond like uh, our intellectual mind and connect with our hearts right yeah um and that is a transform and that's the transformative process right that's the alchemy uh and so i think what um i'm trying to create at this point is a space where people uh feel safe enough uh and there's obviously tools and techniques that we go through in this experiential experience to get them to address their story and the adversity that they've experienced and how that has informed them because for the most part i uh, this idea of 
hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And that many of us have been hurt. And then we engage in, you know, that's the lens we put on, right? That's the lens we see the world through. And often it causes it to hurt others. And uh, I met a gentleman by the name of Steve Haley and his wife, Dorothy Stucky Haley, live in Kansas. They created a program. Uh, they have a center called the Family Peace Initiative. And he kept, uh, I met him in DC at a round table. They had invited a, a number of us to come and have a conversation about domestic violence, all international service providers. And he and I really just connected. He's a white guy from Kansas, you know, <laughs> and I'm, a, I'm some Latino from Bolivia. And, but uh, he's got such a big heart, you know, and what he has done is he has this art of facilitation that he kept inviting me to. And I finally went and uh, it's a three part series to uh, each, each uh, part has two very intensive days. And I'm sharing this because um, it's all service providers that go through this experience of dealing with their shadow and their golden shadow, the person who has helped them to, you know, uh, still be here, right? That person that has loved them and given them a sense of dignity and value and worth. And there was this woman in the room and she was bugging the hell out of me. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't stop looking at her and, and focusing on her and because she was so resistant to the whole process. And, uh, and again, that's the parts of ourselves that are just there, right? Right. And, uh, and at some point, like, you know, just, I, I don't believe there's accidents. I'm brought into a small group with her. And, and, the, and the exercise is to uh, have that person in, in your life. So you sit in one chair and you have this empty chair. And in the empty chair is that person that has made you feel mad, sad, glad, or afraid. And uh, through that process, the person in her life was her father. And her father was incredibly abusive. Mm -hmm. And her father demeaned her. And her father still exists. And he, he continues to be that person in her life. And that gave me an insight into where her rage and her resistance was coming from. And she works in the prisons. And she was one of the most feared individuals in that prison overseeing these these in inmates in a women's prison. Uh, and uh, the second time we got together, after going through this experience, when she let go of that, she was, a, she, I remember her sitting in a corner and she was now knitting, which is a very creative process, right? And, and, and requires another part of yourself. And, and that facade, that, 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 you know, that, that hardness was, was gone. Right. To some degree, right? And so I realized, again, going back to the story, if, if we just see people where they are, right? And we're all, you know, I don't know if you know of Ken Wilber and Integral Theory, but we're all in different places in the continuum of consciousness, right? And many of us are still living at the very basic stage of fight right. or fear. And rather than resenting them, to just be where they are with them. Yes. Brene Brown, you know, go into the cave, right? That's empathy, right? Yes. Not try to fix me, but be with me. You know, right. uh, Brian Stevenson, proximity, right? 
not, you know, uh, many of these individuals like at Aspen and I, I, God love them and they have tremendous access and wealth. They're the 1%, right? And they're fixing the world's problems, but the, at the same time, they're also contributing to the world's problems, right? And, and part of it is they're so separate from the problems that they're trying to fix because they don't have proximity. Right. And I think that's one of the things that success does for us, this idea of this American dream. It has separated us from each other, right? Because it's now about the things I have versus who I am inside, right? Uh, so uh, the work I'm, I'm about to do is I have these amazing people in my life that I've met over the last six years, um, national trauma experts and, and teacher leaders. And so I'm bringing them together uh, in October in, in Kansas City, uh, actually in Topeka, <laughs> which I heard is the center of the country. You know? <laughs> uh, and Steve and I are gonna take them through this experience. And the idea is for these leaders to help us to then uh, give this experience to teachers. You know, how do we bring this into the education space? Yeah. And my understanding is that uh, when you have that light come through, right, that I had, when you have those seeds planted, that then uh, it begins to change you, right? You, you start to see that there's other, that there's other, this other way of being, this other way of seeing. Like the lens that I looked at her through has been changing gradually. I have a new lens coming on, you know, to the point where after she shared, I said to her, do you mind if I hug you? No. <laughs> right? Versus this person who I'm like, ugh, you know? Right, right. Right? And she said, sure. And then we held each other. And that was more healing for me than for her, right? Just like with my experience with my father. And so, I know that that's possible for us. Uh, and I don't think it exists. I, I think it's that connection between intellect and heart. Yes. Aspen woke me up to the power of knowledge, but I also had a life that informed me that is just as valuable. Right. The knowledge I, I attained through the suffering I experienced, through the experiences I had, through the things I overcame. Right. And, and so I think... Uh, to bring that into the space and to just honor each other. Yes. And, and I'm looking at teachers because they have such an impact, right? Bernay talks about this, you know, that uh, 80% of children who are, uh, are impacted negatively by a teacher and generally it's their creative selves, you know, uh, their ability to, to do art or music or somebody just telling them, what are you doing in my class? You can't see. Right. <laughs> or, uh, but at the same time, 90% of teachers, and it's an exercise we do in the training, are the, are the, golden, are the golden shadow, right? Are the individual who said, my God, you have so much to get. Yes. Right? And so that's such a powerful space to, to help that transformation come about because if a teacher starts to see themselves, they can't help but when they step into that space, see these children, right? Or these young adults or these individuals that they're in charge of in yeah. a different way, right? And that's where the trauma piece, you know, informs, right? That many of these kids are coming hungry. 
Many of them are coming feeling alone, uh, feeling worthless, uh, experiencing tremendous community and family violence. And like myself, you know, if you're up till three in the morning, listen to your father beat the crap out of your mother. You're not paying attention to the math lesson. Right. Probably why I struggle with algebra, which that's a whole nother thing because I don't know. <laughs> it denies so many people the ability to get a college degree, and especially people of color who have other other skill sets and other things that they have to give, right? So again, things like we focus on STEM and, and decide this is the answer and then deny all this other creative, you know, which we're now focusing on the social emotional right. aspect of us as human beings. And so it's a complex, it's a complex world with a lot of questions, but, you know, I think one of my favorite writers, Raina Maria Rilke influenced me in, in, in his letters to a young poet. He was saying to the young poet, just keep asking the questions, you know, someday you'll walk into those answers. Right. So, um, I think that's uh, what I have to give you, Terry, in terms of in our conversation. I'm grateful for you having me on your show. Is um, at this age, uh, and there's such a need for men like myself that, you know, uh, the men I was before in Albuquerque, Richard Rohr and James Finley and, uh, and others who have been guides to me, we need... We need our wise men, you know, and we need our wise women to to hold up our the children that are coming up, you know, have come after us who uh, are going to be struggling with a really complicated world, right? But yeah. Our environment and and our lack of respect for Mother Earth and and our racial issues and and all this trauma stuff, but. You know, on, on a note of hope, this, this idea of plasticity. Oh, right? yeah. Brain plasticity. That's my yeah, favorite. Yeah, our ability to constantly regenerate and to learn until... I mean, I'm always blown away by, like, the 98-year-old who gets her master's degree. Or, you know, like, well, I saw that's something odd, right? Like, we discard these beautiful people. Like, in my culture, we still have a veneration. You know, uh, on my father's end, they gave me a lot also. My grandmother, Margarita, and my grandfather, Sebastian. And when my grandfather, Sebastian, who my father threw out of the house when he was 20 because my grandfather was dragging his mom, my dad's mom, around by the hair. Uh, when I met him uh, when he was in his late 50s, he had stopped drinking. He was no longer drinking, and he was a different individual. And I remember visiting Bolivia at 21. And my grandfather was at the end of his life and he went to a parrillada, which is a barbecue with me. And he sat with me and he had a beer. And my uncles all said, do you know what an honor that is? You know, he doesn't drink anymore and he's drinking with you because he's ushering you into manhood. I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily a healthy thing. Right. <laughs> Uh, and, and again, everything in moderation, but it's a symbolistic thing, right? It's right. like you now, you know, see yourself as, as a young man, right? And, and I'm passing this on to you. And uh, so I think there's, there's that piece of it uh, in, in terms of trying to um, 
there's there's a group at Aspen Aspen working on the Weave uh, Social Service Project, and they're looking at the isolation in this country and the loneliness and disenfranchisement, and realizing that. Uh, this new movement that we're experiencing is about coming back into this idea of community. And it doesn't need to be the experts, right, that lead us, but each other. Yes. Just like in what you're doing and bringing us together from all over the world, having these conversations, hopefully, you know, planting some seeds, hopefully bringing up some questions uh, and getting to know each other uh, in a much deeper way. Yes. It's beautiful. So I have to, we'll end on, on my favorite question. And you've watched a few of my, listened to a few of my episodes. So if you could meet anyone in the world to help you with your continued journey, dead or alive, who would it be? You know, uh, it'd be St. Francis. <laughs> I, although Jimmy Carter is a close second. <laughs> I've driven to uh, past Georgia a couple of times and I, uh, is. He's such a wonderful man and I think has done so much since leaving the presidency, much more than he did as a president in terms of bringing us to this understanding of uh, oneness with each other and, and loving others. And, but St. Francis, you know, um, I, I, that's his, his prayer, you know, um, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace where there is hatred. Let me sow your love yeah. where there is pardon. That, that so resounds for me. Um, and and I, at some point, you know, these transformations, right? Because he came from great wealth and then realized that the answer wasn't there, right? And he gave everything away and created this. Uh, actually, Richard is a Franciscan. This whole community that's still thousands of years later is still here, right, with us. And right. so I think, um, you know, when I left to care for my father, I put everything I had in storage, which I haven't seen for like three years now. <laughs> and I don't even know what's there. And I put everything that was valuable to me in, in like 12 boxes in my uh, RAV4. And those things were the pictures of my family members, my child's pictures or things that reminded me of her, you know, uh, you know, powerful, but in a sense, devalued by the culture we live in right uh and i don't want to get i don't want to bring those things back in my life you know i one of the ways i regulated was to spend hours in front of that television set i realized feeling numb right mm -hmm. versus opening up a book or challenging my you know self creatively or intellectually but again i wasn't in that in that place, I wasn't able, I didn't have those tools. Yeah. Which is so important to understand, like, you know, Francis, he didn't just create the community, he, he lived a certain, he modeled it, right? And then people got to see it. So I think as leaders, as teachers, we're modeling a certain way of being. And, um, and there's so many, there's so many good people doing so many wonderful things. I remember as an actor, you know, wanting to be Marlon Brando, <laughs> and and uh, I, I, my one of my teachers was like, "Have you have you looked at yourself? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're like not not you don't look anything like Marlon Brando." You know? <laughs> 
And, uh, but the thing was, it was like, uh, being me is good enough. Yes. You know what I mean? And, and, and each one of us is unique in, in our own way. And, and if we can help us to get to that, to like, you know, be who we are, like our true self. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. I recently, well, not recently, probably in the last few years came across the concept of minimalism. And it was, so we've done it at our home and we've gone through, we went through our entire basement, you know, we had shelves down there filled with stuff. And I decided this, this, these things that were just collecting dust that I thought, Oh, I may use someday, or I might want to keep it. And I thought, why I gave it almost a personality, like this thing needs to be loved by someone else. And so the idea we've gone through and we've given away so much stuff, but we put it out on Facebook and we say, Hey, we have this and this and this and this and this. And I take pictures and I put it out and whoever wants it free to a good home. And man, like my mom's record collection, that was a blast because my mom was like, you know, in her eighties. And she said, I don't listen to these records anymore. I, I can't hear them anyway. And so I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to give them away. And she said, okay. And I put them out. All these young kids showed up at our house and they were like finals, like made a comeback. And so they were wanting all of these old, you know, Elvis records and um, even like Disney. She had some old Disney stuff and people were just all excited because they, and it was these kids in their twenties. So it was really cool to see. Um, yeah. Gifting it so away. Youngest is 13. Yes, I have a 25, a 23, and a 13. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Get to do it all over again. I know, right, right. She's a great kid, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Uh, I had a recent, uh, and can I share the story? Sure. So one of the, uh, James Finley, who, who uh, is one of my teachers uh, and was a monk at the Abbey with Thomas Merton, and has written a number of books, uh, uh, Cloud of Unknowing, et cetera, about his experience with Thomas Merton, uh, kind of took us through uh, a meditative practice and his practice. And then he had a Q&A. And, uh, and the Q&A, this gentleman, Hector, who was in part of my people of color group, and I got to know him and our, and our, our uh, commonalities with our children, said, you know, the day my daughter was born changed my life. And she's now 32. And, uh, and at the time I was in Florida, and he's still in Florida, and our kids are both in L.A. And he now wants to move back to L.A. because he feels like he wants to be near her. And, uh, and he said, and I don't know what I would do if she died. I, I couldn't bear it. And... Uh, and, he, and so his question was, is that how we're supposed to feel about God? Is that how much we're supposed to love him and connect with him on that level? And James shared this story. He, he said a lot of other things, but he shared the story that really struck me. Um, he, because he's a psychologist in, in Santa Monica, and he works with uh, a lot of people in the industry, and he was working with this very well-known filmmaker, and at some point, uh, they, they had wanted to have a child and they had a little girl. And when she was three or four, she developed leukemia. Mm. And one of the things that she loved to do was put on daddy's shoes. And she would like 
walk around with these shoes, these huge shoes, you know, and he was all, they were all worried for him. And he was like, you need to stop doing that. You're going to fall. You're going to hurt yourself. But she, it was just, she was enamored of his shoes. <laughs> and so one day he came home and he found it had just, he was on a, one of his jobs and, and he came home and the shoes were out in the yard and it had poured, it pouring rain and the shoes were ruined. And it was his favorite pair of Italian, you know, very expensive loafers. And he brought them in and he was like, honey, this is why you don't wear daddy's shoes, right? Well, three months after that, she died. Oh. And those shoes were on the steps. And he couldn't for six months bring himself to moving those shoes because they embodied her. Right. Right. And that was, in a sense, his getting through his grief was the understanding that she had given them four beautiful years, that she had been this gift, right? And that was Jim's message to his, to this, to Hector was, she's not yours, right? If something happens to her, and I know it's one of the most difficult things parents go through if they lose a child before they, you know, before their time. Um, but she's not yours. And I heard that deeply in terms of my yeah. child, you know, because my child has struggled. I mean, as much as I've been able to minimize the adversity in her life, I still brought a lot of adversity into her life. And she has her own personal journey and struggles. But recently, uh, in a very difficult time in her life, I got to, for the first time, see her, right, at 21 and, and see really see her, not, not see who I hoped she would be or the dreams I had for her, but this young woman who is struggling and is in a dark place, like, you know, the, her dark night of the soul. Right. Where I am able to see what a gift she is to me, right? And, and my ability to just love her in that place and honor her and, and hopefully if she allows me to guide her. Uh, so all these things, Terry, that I had no, I, they were not part of my toolbox, right? Uh, I had to be helped by many people and acquire all these tools that people had given me or that I came across to get to that place where I can actually, you know, begin with my inner circle, with the people that are closest to me and really see them. And then I can expand beyond them and see you and see the wider earth you know the wider uh circle of, of us yeah beautiful so how do people get a hold of you they can go to uh, jamesandcenas.com uh i have a forum i have some wonderful people we uh we actually meet once a month and have these conversations and then they all write a piece uh, there's a there's i think now at least uh six to nine pieces that uh, uh really interesting uh, from their perspective on, on this conversation of how do we have an impact, uh, you know, and addressing these issues. So jamesandcenas.com, uh, and the book is, is on Amazon. Um, I just translated it or had to translate to Spanish. Uh, so I, I hope to, you know, uh, I hope it reaches people in Latin America and Spanish speaking. And then one of my Aspen colleagues, is now in, in uh, Hong Kong, 
in China and uh, he read the book and loves it. So I hope, uh, you know, it's, it's making its way around. And I mean, I have a lot of other books in me, but I think this one, um, there's, there's, it has the ability to touch people. And I think that's, that's powerful because in the world that we live in with these podcasts, with just, you know, going on YouTube and listening to Bruce Perry or Dan Siegel or going on a website and, and getting a tutorial on meditation or, you know, uh, it's just so accessible to us now. Right. Yes. But we need to get that, that seed that, that exposes us to, Hey, there's, there's another world be, be beyond this world that we exist in or that we've been told is, is the world we need to, create for ourselves right amen <laughs> all right well thank you so much for joining me today that was my pleasure yeah, been an honor thank you everyone thank you for joining us and until next time remember be gentle with yourselves thanks bye-bye